Well, good morning and welcome here. My name is James. I'm one of the pastors, and it's uh, my privilege to lead us this morning in the study of God's Word. Uh, We're in the in-between time right now. So what that means is we just finished off a series asking the question, who is Jesus? Uh, Pastor Ray preached the last sermon in that series last week. And at the beginning of of April, we're going to be doing a series that takes us through Easter and, and looking at the purpose and vision of the church. And so we're kind of in between right now. But in the meantime, uh, we're going to be spending some time in the book of Psalms, which is going to be uh, really good. So if you can take your Bible, uh, either grab one from in front of you or if you brought your own, uh, and turn with me to Psalm, five, or Psalm chapter 8, I should say, uh, which is found on page 450 if you're using the Bible that was in front of you. And as you turn there, let me just pray for us as we begin our time together. Father, we thank you that we can gather in this place and worship you freely. Father, we thank you that we can now come and and read your word that you've given to us. Father, we thank you that your word is truth, uh, that it's called a light to our path, and we can walk in its light in our daily lives. So would you just be with us now, Father, quiet our hearts and our minds, help us to be attentive to you, and we just pray that you be with us now by your spirit. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Psalm chapter 8. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the fields, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all of the earth. There's a game that I've played sometimes that I don't really like very much. Uh, The game is called Taboo, and if you like this game, I'm not trying to be offensive, but I just don't enjoy this game very much. Uh, How the game works is this. Each contestant is given a number of cards with a word on the top of them, and your job is once you see this card, you're you're to describe the word at the top of the card uh, to the people on your team. If the people on your team guess the word correctly, your team gets a point. And so it sounds simple enough, but there's a catch to this game. Uh, the word that's written on top has a number of words written under it that are related to it that you're not allowed to use in your description. So, for example, if the word at the top of the, of the card was Arctic, there would be words underneath Arctic like cold, snow, ice, north, things like that that you're not allowed to say in your description. And just to make sure you don't say these words, someone is, is given a buzzer that makes an annoying eh, eh, sound. And, and what their job is, is kind of to watch you like a hawk. And if you even utter any syllable from one of these words, uh, they buzz the buzzer in your ear and you lose a point. Uh, so some people really like this because, you know, you got to get creative and you got to think outside the box. I just end up getting stressed out and getting frustrated uh, because the game works because you can't talk about one thing sometimes uh, without talking about another thing. Right? You can't really talk about the Arctic without talking about snow and ice and cold and north, uh, which is what makes the game interesting. Now, the reason I bring this up is because I think there's a similar principle happening in our text today. 
What I mean by this is Psalm 8's been known as a psalm that speaks about the purpose of humanity and the dignity and value that human beings have. But, but it's interesting that David, the person who writes this psalm, uh, doesn't actually begin by speaking about humanity. You see, David recognizes that you can't actually speak about the purpose and value of humanity without first speaking about the God who created us. And so what David does is he gives this explanation of how the world works and what our place is in the world. Uh, He makes sure that he sets everything within the context of who God is. Uh, As David sets this out, your outline says this. uh, David declares, first of all, the glory of God. Uh, You probably notice that David begins and ends with this same line. He says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Uh, He says that in verse 1 and verse 9 is is exactly identical. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Uh, I'm sure you noticed that. And if you were looking very carefully, uh, you might have also noticed that in this phrase, O Lord, our Lord, uh, the two words Lord there are are a little bit different. Uh, You'll notice that the first Lord is written in all capital letters. and, And the second one is just the first letter that's capitalized. Now, don't worry, this is not a typo. This is not a mistake. It's, it's not even arbitrary either because what this does is it actually alerts us to the fact that there's uh, two different Hebrew words uh, that are being translated as Lord here. Uh, the first being a name and the second being a title. Uh, the first one uh, in all capital letters is actually the name that God revealed to his people when he was rescuing them from slavery in Egypt. So we remember that Moses was uh, at the burning bush and God calls him to go rescue his people. Uh, God reveals himself to Moses uh, with this name Yahweh, uh, otherwise pronounced sometimes as Jehovah. Uh, This is the covenant name that God has revealed to his people. Uh, The second word, Lord, that's translated here is the Hebrew word Adonai. And what that word tells us is that God is the sovereign Lord and King of the universe. It, It speaks to his rule and authority. And so when you put these together, uh, you see that it's not just any God or this idea of God in general, uh, but it's actually the God who reveals himself to us in the Bible uh, that is the king and creator of all things. Uh, The NRSV, the New Revised Standard Version, uh, tries to kind of make this distinction in their translation. They translate it as, O Lord, our sovereign, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Uh, But the point again is that This God who's revealed himself to us in scripture, Yahweh, is the God who is king and creator. Uh, David writes this about him. He says, "Uh, you have set your glory above the heavens. So heaven, uh, not even the highest heaven, can contain the glory of God. Uh, There's a Bible teacher named James Montgomery Boyce uh, who's written a commentary uh, on the book of Psalms. And he says this, which I love. He says, although creation expresses his glory revealing his existence, wisdom, and great power, as well as other attributes. It is only a partial revelation of the surpassingly greater God who stands behind it. If God has set his glory above the heavens, it is certain that nothing under heaven can praise him adequately. That last line there, that nothing under heaven can praise him adequately, what that's basically saying is that uh, there's never a point at which creation uh, offering all the praises that it can to God would ever get to a point where God would say, that's enough praise. You've given me all the praise I deserve, right? There's a sense in which as creation, we we can never praise God to the degree that he's worth. We can never adequately praise God. 
And yet the incredible thing is that God actually allows us still to offer praise uh, to him, uh, as, as insignificant as it, as it is. Uh, we read this in verse 2. Out of the mouths of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. Now, this is a bit of a curious phrase, and, and some people have taken it, taken it different ways. Uh, but what I think is going on here is David's just repeating this biblical theme of weakness turned to strength. This idea that God can use weak and insignificant uh, people and things to accomplish his purposes. Uh, you'll remember in, in uh, 1 Corinthians 1 verse 27, uh, Paul writes this about God. He says, He has chosen that which is foolish and weak in the eyes of the world to put to shame the wise and that which is strong. See, the idea is that God is so powerful that he can even use weak and insignificant things to accomplish his purposes and to proclaim his glory in the world in such a way that that glory will never be overcome. And so the picture that we see here is a simple but profound picture. It's that the God of the Bible is the creator and king of the universe, the one who deserves all our glory, all our praise, uh, who stands over all things. And David doesn't want us to miss this because nothing about ourselves, nothing about the rest of creation will make sense unless we first realize that this is who God is and this is what God is like. And so having established this and having made this crystal clear, David moves on to speak about humanity. And it's not immediately flattering for us. Uh, David declares this, second of all, the insignificance of humanity. Verse 3. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? See, what David's saying here is he says, there's times when I look into the, into the heavens, uh, he mentions the moon and the stars, uh, not the sun, which probably should make us think of the night sky. And, and David says, when I look at the heavens, sometimes I'm just struck by how small and insignificant I am. Uh, it causes him to ask this question, what is man that you are mindful of him? Or basically he's saying, God, who am I, small as I am, that you even care about me? Uh, you see, in some ways I think David was at an advantage compared to us because uh, how often do we actually get to go outside and see a clear view of the sky? Now, usually at nighttime we're indoors and there's lights on, or if we're outside we make sure we're in well-lit areas uh, and, and that kind of obscures our vision of the night sky. Uh, but for David and for those who, who lived around the time he wrote this, there would have been this uh, constant, almost daily reminder of the vastness of the night sky. Uh, he would have regularly been able to step outside and just see this incredible reality of, of the moon and the stars which God has created. Uh, David would have had this amazing daily reminder of just the vastness of creation and, and his place within that. But on the other hand, uh, living at the time we do, we actually do have some distinct advantages to David. Uh, because even though we maybe don't get to see the night sky as often or as regularly as David would have, uh, the things that we actually now know about the night sky um, drive the point that David was making home even further. Uh, when we consider some of the things we now know about the universe in, in its scope and size, uh, it really is incredible. Uh, there's a pastor named Louis Giglio. He's uh, kind of based out of Atlanta, Georgia, uh, who was speaking at a conference uh, a while back, and he, uh, he kind of spent these couple talks just highlighting some of the amazing things that we now know about the universe, uh, things that just make David's point even stronger. 
And, and so what I'm about to share comes from one of the talks he gave called How Great Is Our God. If, you, if you're interested, you can look it up uh, today at some point or this week. Um, but to, to, to give some perspective of what David's talking about, we're going to be using uh, this golf ball as a prop. Now, this golf ball from this point out is going to represent planet Earth. Okay, so I'm just going to hold it out. Make sure you can see it. Uh, this represents the place where uh, you were born, where you grew up, where all of your interactions happened. Unless we have any astronauts in the audience, I think this will be true. I'm just going to kind of turn it on its axis here. And once you see your house, just kind of raise your hand so I can see that you're... Okay, I'll come to your house uh, after church. That's awesome. You can see it from uh, here. Um, but yeah, this is going to represent Earth. And I hope already that there's this kind of shrinking feeling that comes upon us as we, as we think that, that the Earth could be pictured uh, as something this size. Uh, but what we're going to do is we're going to actually take a, a trip through the galaxy and, and we're going to see how small Earth actually is within the grand scheme of things. And, and to do this, we're going to stop, first of all, at the sun. Now, the sun is the closest star to us. It's relatively close in terms of space. It's only, I think it's 150 million kilometers away, give or take. Uh, that's rounded up. Now, if the earth was the size of a golf ball, the sun would be about 15 feet in diameter. Now, this week I came on stage with the measuring tape. If, uh, if the earth was the size of a golf ball, the sun's 15 feet in diameter, which would begin here and would end somewhere around right here. Now, just think about the size of this golf ball compared to the, the massive sphere that would, that would take up this space if, if it was 15 feet in diameter. The truth is that you could fit 960,000 Earths inside the sun. If the Earth was the size of a golf ball, that's enough golf balls to fill up a school bus with golf balls. It's pretty incredible. But the, but the amazing thing is that the sun's not actually the largest star in the universe. Uh, a lot of us probably knew this. It's, it's not even the largest star in our galaxy. It, it is the largest star in our solar system, uh, but that's because it's the only one. There's, there's many stars that are actually greater than the sun, and, and one of them in particular that I want to draw our attention to is a star that goes by the name of Betelgeuse, and I, I'm not making that up. Uh, it's, it's called Betelgeuse. If you wanted to get to this star, you would have to travel 640 light years. Now, what a light year is, is the amount of distance you could cover in one year if you were traveling at the speed of light. So you think about how fast light travels and how long one year is, it gives you some perspective of how far a light year is. Uh, you'd have to do 640 light years if you're going to arrive at this star that we're talking about. Now, once you get there, uh, this star is actually twice the size, not of the sun, but of the Earth's orbit around the sun. If the Earth was the size of a golf ball, this star, Betelgeuse, would be the height of four CN towers stacked on top of each other. So you can imagine going to Toronto, you buy your plane ticket, you go, uh, you fly into Toronto, you go to the CN Tower, uh, you go down on the sidewalk, you put your golf ball on the ground, uh, you go inside, you pay a large amount of money to go up the elevator to the observation deck, you do that three more times because we're going, we're going up four CN Towers. And what you're going to do is you're going to walk out onto the glass floor of the CN Tower. Maybe some of you have done this before. Uh, if you're afraid of heights, you can stop imagining at this point. But you're going to walk out onto the glass floor of the CN Tower and you're going to look down about two kilometers down and you're going to try to find our little planet on the ground. 
Maybe you brought binoculars or maybe you have great eyesight and you can see it. Once you do, try to find yourself on that little sphere. You could fit 262 trillion Earths inside of Betelgeuse. If the Earth was the size of a golf ball, that's enough golf balls to fill up BC Place Stadium with golf balls 4,000 times. And so the, the crazy thing is we could actually keep going and look at other stars that actually make Betelgeuse look relatively small. But, but here's the point that, that I don't want us to miss. There's this shrinking feeling that comes over us when we realize how small a space our planet takes up within the grand scheme of all that God has created. And even within that, how small a space we take up on the planet that we live in. Uh, There's this incredible shrinking feeling that comes when you just start to think even for a few minutes about the scale and size of this universe that we live in. It causes David to say, what is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. And the answer is we're we're just specks floating around on this tiny planet in, in the grand scheme of all that God has created. But here's the really cool thing. The the heavens don't only tell us how small we are. They also tell us how much God loves us. There's this great line in Psalm 103 verse 11 that says this. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgression from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. And so God sees who we are. He sees that we are dust. And to dust we shall return. And yet he chooses to love us. And to give us an incredible purpose and significance in this world. Your outline says this, that David declares third of all, the derived significance of humanity. Verse four, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands and put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. So again, we see this incredible reality that although small and insignificant in the grand scheme of things, uh, God has chosen to give humanity this awesome uh, role and and purpose within creation. Uh, The word derived, if you're wondering, means obtained from another source. And that's why we use it here because the significance that we have is obtained from another source. It doesesn't come from anything about us and how special we are. It comes just simply from the grace of God, something that he's given to us that we didn't deserve. Uh, it's, it's derived from another source, but it's still incredible nonetheless. Uh, if we look at some of the language used to describe humanity, it's, it's pretty staggering. Uh, it says that they are a little lower than the heavenly beings. Uh, the word that's translated as heavenly beings is actually the word Elohim. Now, some of you might recognize that word. It might sound a bit familiar because Elohim is often translated as God with a capital G in the Old Testament. Uh, So in other words, this word is often used to describe God, uh, the God who reveals himself to us in the Bible. Uh, But like most words, 
uh, depending on the context in which it's used, it can have different meanings. And so uh, Elohim can also be used, uh, translated as God with a lowercase g, as in the gods of the other nations or the gods, uh, false gods that people would worship. And yet again, it can also be translated as heavenly beings or those who stand uh, in the heavenly court in God's presence, speaking about angels and, and like that. And so regardless of how you end up translating this, and I think the ESV gets it right translating heavenly beings, uh, it's incredible to think about the place that humanity has actually been assigned in the created order. Uh, a place a little lower than the heavenly beings. Uh, the text goes on to say that they're crowned with glory and honor. And this language brings forth images of, of kings and queens being crowned with, with, with gl- glory and with authority. And that's kind of what's going on here. There's this image of the king of the universe, God the sovereign ruler over all things, uh, giving authority to humanity as his chosen representatives. Again, this is an authority that only ever comes from God and is responsible to God, uh, but this incredible authority nonetheless. And finally, the text says that humanity have dominion over the rest of the created order. And and he goes on to list uh, all that that entails. Uh, It's this incredible uh, gift and, and responsibility that God has given And the language actually goes back right to the beginning of the Bible. If you go back to Genesis chapter 1, there's this uh, language being used to talk about the purpose that God created people for. In Genesis 1.27, we read this. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. That image of God language once again talks about the fact that as, as humanity, we're God's chosen representatives to exercise his authority in creation. And, and it's interesting that Genesis 1.27 uh, is written before the fall into sin. It, it talks about human condition before humanity falls into sin. Uh, but, but, Gen- or, but Psalm chapter 8 actually teaches us, another place in the Bible teaches us, uh, that even after the fall, humanity is still created in God's image and still given this incredible role and responsibility in creation. Uh, the principle here, it, we can kind of distill it down to a principle, is that of stewardship. Now, stewardship is the idea that you, w- when you take care of something or when you're in charge of something that belongs to someone else, And you're called to care for it and use it in a specific way for a specific purpose that that person has given you. Uh, There's different ways that we could illustrate this, uh, but one of the most memorable for myself comes from a a youth event that I attended when I was in grade eight. It was kind of a a normal youth event in some ways. We had a a time of worship. Uh, Someone came and shared a message. uh, And so that was kind of normal. Uh, And then they announced they were going to do an offering, which was also fairly normal. Uh, But then they said, there's something different about this offering. Uh, They said, this is going to be a reverse offering. And we're all kind of thinking, what is a reverse offering? Uh, So they explained that we're going to pass around the offering buckets, uh, but they're going to start empty. And by the time they go around, they're going to start full. And by the time they get around, they're going to be empty. And I remember just kind of thinking, this is so strange. And, And so what happened is they had these offering buckets full of $5 bills And each of us was instructed to, as the offering came around, take out a $5 bill and hold on to it. Now, I grew up in church, you know, going to church every week. And so this went against like everything that was kind of just within my conscience and within my upbringing. Uh, but But I went along with it because I was told to. And, and we each took out $5 and then they said, okay, here's the, here's the deal. 
Uh, everyone gets to keep this $5. We're not going to ask for it back. Uh, but there's only one stipulation we're going to give you. Uh, they said, we want to we see ministry happen. And so we're giving you this $5 so that you can each use $5 uh, for ministry in some way or for, um, for, for advancing the kingdom of God in some way. And, and so it was kind of like this. Whoa, this is, five, this is a big responsibility. Uh, I remember thinking, you know, $5, that was a lot of money back then. And so I put it in my wallet. And I remember just for the rest of the time that I had that $5 bill, I was just intensely aware that that $5 bill was kind of, was different than the rest of my money. You know, it was kind of set apart because I was given it by someone else and I was supposed to use it for a specific purpose. So if I was going to the store to buy, or sort of going to the school cafeteria to buy lunch, I took out my money. I was always aware that, no, this $5 isn't for lunch. This is for ministry. Uh, this is set, a, set aside for something special. I'm a steward of this money. Of course, I didn't use the word stewardship at that time, but, but that was a principle that was taking place, right? I was a steward of this money that had been given to me. Um, I was intensely aware of where that money was. Now, the interesting thing is I was trying really hard this week to think about what I actually ended up doing with the money, and I I actually don't remember, but, but I hope the illustration works because, um, because of that just awareness that being a steward of that money brought to me. And as I thought about it, I thought it was interesting that in some ways I think I learned the lesson that was being taught, but in other ways I think I missed something more profound. Um, I think when I put that $5 in my wallet, it shouldn't have been just that $5 that I thought about as something that had been given to me and, and to be used for specific purposes. Uh, But actually what I think this text is teaching us is that everything that we have is given to us by God to be used for his purposes. And and so the money that we have is actually given to us by God so we can use it for his glory and his purposes in this world. Uh, The skills and ability that we have, uh, they're not just to make ourselves uh, look good or to advance our own careers or anything like that, but they're actually given to us by God so we can use them for his glory and for his purposes in the world. Uh, the resources at your disposal, whatever they may be, are given to us by God to, to act as stewards, to use them for God's purposes and for his glory. Uh, there's this picture of us as humanity being stewards of the great king and ruler of this universe. And, and so as you step back and kind of look at the picture that Psalm 8 paints for us, it, it's a pretty profound and a pretty neat picture that we see. We have God, the God who reveals himself in, in the word, who is the sovereign ruler and king of all things. Uh, he sees humanity who, although are you know, small and insignificant in the grand scale of all he's created, he's choosing to give them this special role and purpose. And that role for us includes stewarding the things God has given us well, using them for his glory and for his purposes. There's this kind of really uh, neat worldview picture that emerges. But, but maybe you're thinking to yourself, well, you know, this is a really nice idea. Uh, Psalm 8 is a really, you know, it's a really nice idea, but this isn't actually how things work in the real world. You might be thinking, I don't know who this David guy is, but he doesn't seem to be aware that there's actually a sense in which the world doesn't work so neatly. You, know, you might say, in the real world, David, there's billions of people that don't even believe that God exists, let alone that he should be called our king and creator. You know, you might say in the real world, David, um, people don't care for each other and for creation. People exploit one another. People exploit the creation and they just want to get ahead. They don't care about God's glory. They don't care about decency. They just want to do what, what's best for them. And you might even say in the real world, David, 
When we try to exercise this authority that God's given us, when we try to exercise this dominion in a way that honors him, uh, we run into things like famine and, and sickness and, and death and floods and all these things that just want to frustrate uh, what Psalm 8 is talking about. And so, David, this is a nice idea, but it just doesn't actually mesh with what we see in the real world. Uh, does he just not get it? And that's a fair question. And, and I think the answer is no, David is not unaware of what the real world is like. Uh, we actually know this because the same David who wrote this psalm uh, actually wrote a whole bunch of other psalms. And, and you don't have to read too many of them to realize that David is a, intensely aware of the evil and, and wickedness that takes place on a daily basis. Uh, if you read about the things that David had to go through and the things he just cried out to the Lord about that, you know, the wicked prosper and the righteous are persecuted. Uh, if you even turn back one page on, on, on Psalm chapter 7, uh, we see the language that David uses to talk about people that are pursuing him. He says, like a lion, they tear my soul apart, rending it in pieces with none to deliver. It uh, doesn't exactly sound like someone who's naive to the, to the problems and pains of the world. So I think what's happening here is David is saying, not that this is always what the world looks like, but this is actually how God has created the world to be. This is what God has designed and desired the world to be like. But yes, of course, we can look at the Bible and history books and newspaper to find example after example of people failing to live up to this calling that God has given them. Uh, there's a sense in which we don't even need to look that far. We can just look in the mirror in the morning and look at a person who has failed to live up to the calling that God has given to them uh, in Psalm chapter 8. Um, but there's good news. Uh, there's one person who actually lived up to this. Uh, Jesus Christ was fully God, became fully human and, and lived among us, lived this perfect life, died a sinless death for sinners so that we may have new life. And, and when Jesus died on the cross, his death and resurrection meant for us that one day, Psalm 8 will once again become a reality. And, and even more so uh, in the new heavens and the new earth. Uh, Matthew 28, 19 talks about this. It says, all authority on heaven and in, on earth has been given to Jesus. Now you might be asking the question, well, if Jesus, still, if Jesus has all this authority, why do we still think things going on the way that they always have? And, and that's another fair question. The Bible actually talks about this in numerous ways. Uh, but the one I want to look at specifically right now is in the book of Hebrews. And it's in chapter 2, verse 7 where the author of the book of Hebrews uh, uses the language of Psalm 8 to talk about the fact that although Jesus has all authority, uh, we don't actually see that fully at this time. Psalm, or sorry, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 8. You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. I love that line that spans verse 8 and 9 where it says, At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him. Uh, we are truly actually in the in-between time. Uh, Jesus has come, he's announced the kingdom of God, he, he's inaugurated it, that means he's begun it. He's made it certain by his death and resurrection that one day God's rule will be over all the earth and the new creation. 
And yet we live in a time where we're still waiting for that to be fulfilled in its completeness. But we have a hope. The death and resurrection of Jesus teaches us and assures us that even though Psalm 8 might might feel idealistic at times, uh, we know that it's not a fantasy. The day is coming when when the heavenly voices will declare, as Revelation 11 verse 15 tells us, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And so as you look at Revelation, you start to see all these pieces put into place that Psalm 8 kind of anticipates and looks forward to. Uh, There's God reigning over all creation, all this new creation, and all the world knowing about it. Uh, Jesus sitting on the throne, ruling and reigning. And we actually learn that those who have been washed clean by the blood of Jesus Christ, those who have been forgiven and put their faith in Jesus, will actually reign with him in this new heavens and new earth. This idea that humanity will once again reign with Christ in the way that we were always meant to. So we are in the in-between time. And the question we need to ask is, how are we supposed to live in this time? What is it supposed to look like for us who believe in Jesus? And the answer is, I think, twofold. Your outline says this. Our first response is faithful stewardship. This is, again, acknowledging that everything we have is a gift from God and seeking to be faithful stewards in all that God has given us. And here's where I want to challenge us because I think oftentimes when we think about using what we have for God, we think about just, you know, money or specific talents and gifts of the Spirit. And in that case, it's really easy to let ourselves off the hook, right? Because we'll say, well, I don't have a big chunk of change in my bank account to give up and I don't have any of these specific gifts, so I'm off the hook. Well, no, that's not the case because everything we have is given by God for his glory and for his purposes, And so you might be surprised if you go home today and and you start writing a list of all the things that God has given you, whether that's a vehicle, whether that's a house, whether that's a family, whether that's influence in certain areas, writing all those things down and just asking God, God, what would it look like for me to use this thing for your glory and your purposes? Uh, What would it look like for, for me to be faithful in not just some of the things that you've given me or not just some of the areas, but in all the areas that you've given me? The first call is faithful stewardship. The Bible says that whoever is faithful and little will be given authority over much. Uh, God calls us to be faithful. And the second is this, eager expectation and prayer uh, is our response. Eager expectation and prayer. Because I think when you, when you get a glimpse of the way that God's created and designed the world to be, And when you get a glimpse of, of what the world will one day be like in the new heavens and the new earth when God makes all things new, it's really hard to be satisfied with the way things are. It gives us this longing and expectation for the day when God's name will be majestic in all the earth, uh, when God reigns and, and all the world knows about it, uh, when, when all things are made right. I don't think it's an accident that Jesus taught us to pray these words, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so in the in-between time, we faithfully steward what God has given to us and we eagerly await the day he returns. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you so much for all that you've given to us. We thank you especially for your son Jesus who came and died for our sins so we may have life with you. Father, help us to be faithful stewards of all you've given us, especially the gospel message of Jesus Christ. 
May we be people who faithfully serve you as we eagerly await the day you make all things do in the new creation. I pray that you give us that eternal perspective. And would you help us to walk this week uh, knowing that you love us and go with us. We thank you and praise this in Jesus' name. Amen.